0: The Pilbara Killings, by Sabine T. Shetland, as read by Andrews Barr. Chapter 14 There is a rusted wooden door with a metal peephole in the hills of Aventino, just on the outskirts of the city of Rome, that, pressing up one's eye firmly against it, perfectly frames a view of the dome of St Peter's Basilica right there on the crossroads of two cobbled streets in amongst the smell of the soft delicious oils coming from the orange groves. They are Aventino's second signature. It was Teddy's favourite place in all of Rome. A quiet little brother of the much sturdier Roman hills, the Palatine and the Capitoline, Aventino offered him the solace from all his torments. It was like nothing horrid could live up on the hill in its atmosphere and he could order a coffee and a cornetto in peace. Hilary Carter had been persistent with his nonsense what with the missing church moneys and the scans of the clippings amongst daily calling for Teddy's return to face a parliamentary inquiry. He could feel the noose tightening, and for all of Carter's officious fussing, he'd been decent enough to warn of the impending threats. The Pope's Camerlengo, Cardinal Scarpa would not take Teddy's calls, and he'd been unable to gain an audience with His Holiness for the last two weeks. Scarpa was notoriously difficult to find, and obsessed with protocols and his role in shielding the pontiff from any whiff of scandal. A man wrapped in the powers of the Roman Curia, the administrative arm of the Holy See and the public face of Mother Church. The quiet whisper amongst those who only weeks before had been on Teddy's side was that the pontifical promise to wear the cardinal's beretta was no more. (coughs) It's surprising how much the gloss of a beautiful city wears thin when life does not go one's way. He would walk at least once a day past the great tourist attractions of the Eternal City just to be inspired and somehow rejuvenated, but it was becoming increasingly difficult. He threw all the coins he could muster into the Trevi Fountain not really realising that it was a totem for heterosexual love and that it swallowed all that loose change in the hope not only of the return of those throwing their purse, but in the expectation of marriage. He strolled past the Spanish steps with a strong, high, dark building at their top which had imprisoned Galileo and which had pushed the Renaissance master towards a lamentable recantation that everything he could see in the heavens was not as it seemed. The Catholic Church was Teddy's master, and the significance of the place was lost on him. Rome was a city made for fathers, filled with the charming simple smiles of the young girls. He loved the deference of the tourists to the sight of his clerical vestments that would have them parting the ways as he would sweep through any piazza dressed in full episcopal regalia. He was back where he needed to be, a place of respect the sweet paradox of no-one here knowing of his troubles or who he was and yet still respecting the office. People in the streets broke ranks for him just because of who they imagined he might have been, and he liked it. The church was all symbols, he thought, and they were all important. He decided then and there that he would stay. He would not face their music back in Australia, no matter what some parliamentary committee had demanded. His was a different tune, and all he needed to do was to walk away throw away all those lawyers and theologians. He could be hanged if he'd listened to any of them now. There was nothing to negotiate. And it didn't matter if it was some delusion, it was his delusion. Since making the decision that he would not return to Australia to face up to God knows what, he'd even been sleeping much better. There was less of that waking up at 3am, less of the wandering of the corridors and watching the umber glows crown the top of the city buildings, struggling to frame the new day's light when there was no one else awake to share. But it was lonely, and not how he had ever imagined it. Just last year he'd been on top of the world, sitting on this or that committee, called for his expert opinion, headlining on the terrestrial talk shows on questions of moral value. But now his cell phone had not rung in three weeks, and even if it did, he would probably not answer. He thought about little else. The private torments were the greatest, the things no one knows about, those horrid, hidden stories that surface and unfurl themselves and leave all the best-laid plans in ruination. Those big and little secrets were the things with their toll, the stuff that ages. Perhaps he thought that he might have been overthinking it, but the dangers were very real, and he was caught up in it all like the spider and the fly. leafy suburban Yangabup on a Sunday is a small Perth preserve of Catholic decorum. The old yacht and tennis set, handled by mustaches and trimmed sandwiches. It was pin-drop quiet at eight in the morning when Inspector Niall O'Hurley gently knocked on Margaret Olliamner's door to hear only the sound of her disturbed Pekingese scratching on the inside. She took an age to answer and then opened the door widely, expecting that it was one of her neighbours but it was O'Herlihy and a small squad from the fraud section with court orders and transfer trolleys to take away her computer hardware. She wasn't without some experience of the law and looked resigned. How did you know? Not what the hell are you doing here? She was polished enough to even put on the kettle for them. It wasn't difficult, really. You left a trail. There was a ledger in Agnes Armitage's files. It was marked with your name, dates of meetings with the Archbishop, the Director of Finance and then there was a small matter of your holidays in Belize. We just ran your photograph on the diocese file to the authorities in its capital, Belmapan, and seems you were spotted entering the Atlantic International Bank three times over the last six months, each correlating with a sizeable dip in the St Joseph's Pension Fund. Your signature and that on the transfers are identical. Come now, you didn't really expect that we wouldn't notice a glitch like $600,000, would you? She sighed and hunched her shoulders. Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. She sat stony-faced, but O'Hurley had told her that they were on their way to arrest her brother, who had also been seen in a Belize international bank on two occasions. We know about the second bank account too, he said, and it was then that her eyes filled. Are the cuffs absolutely necessary? She asked as he led her away from her front landing in full view of a small crowd that had gathered like moths to a flame around the spinning police light, oh yes, my dear, he said, that a must comes with the territory. It was late, and the hoarding colonies of fruit bats gorged on insects had embedded well in capsized repose in the mulga trees around the Jeffreys home. There were no lights on, and Zimmerman came in through the back laundry, entering her bedroom. She bolted upright in her bed with a start but did not scream. Switching on the light and screwing up her eyes until her pupils adjusted, she beckoned him to her bed and he undressed and slid alongside her. She felt his hardness against her thigh and reached for it, wrapping her hand around it with a solid grip. She yanked him towards her and turned over on her side, feigning sleep, and they stayed like that for some of the night. In the morning he traced the pulp of his index finger lightly across the contour of her breast and down her soft velvet abdomen to the thigh. A perfect line. She woke and turned to him smiling and asking what he had meant yesterday before she had thrown him out. It might come as little surprise that the expressions of love from a solidly single man are not that robust. Excuses, really. Half-hearted protestations and complex stories describing things that should to normal people be so simple and straightforward. Little subterfuges lies. He told her that he loved her and that there should be no ambiguity in it. There, he had repeated himself, and she could accept it all, nothing hidden in it to read. But it wasn't the natural things that can, in the hope of most women, pour out of a genuine man. A need to be with her and for her to be part of him, as natural as by design, that if it could not be so, then there would be something missing in the metabolism of the day an engine for which no parts can matter. It can work no matter how well they are configured if they are not fitted together. But she never heard it from him despite all his words and he knew that he was just exploiting her for the child. There would be no inner moralist sitting on one of his shoulders arguing with the demons on the other side. This was no principal choice but just simple realism trumping the fantastical. She could never know or understand the logic of his incentives. Did he or she ever imagine that they might live in some wedded bliss and that he would never want for more? The same ancient answer came that exonerated him for decades of progress in his life. The more, whatever that was, would always be around the next corner. He parted her hair and pretended that the matter was somehow settled, and she fell for his lines as no doubt others, even less suspecting, had before. He worked his way around to the child, and he told her what he knew of Lisa's killer, of the priest, and of the importance of prizing out Arthur's vital confession. And so she betrayed her own son, gave him up as natural as any conspiracy can, seeking him out in the back of the house and sitting him down and toning him to answer the nice man's questions. Zimmerman had won, and he commenced precisely where he had left off the day before And what would a child know of this? The spotlight of attention and reward. He reminded Arthur of the point to which they had arrived, and he nodded. Mother, an interrogator watchful of every word, they retraced Lisa's steps as he asked again about Arthur's secret. Lisa, come back past the church one night, Arthur said. Lights all on and tells me that the preacher was playing with some boys, pulling at their dongs and such and making them pull his. What would she know about that? She told me that she just started laughing like when you get the giggles and can't stop so easy. Told me that he looked up and saw her and ran after her behind some ways with his clothes not right round. But she got home safe and went to sleep. But I know better than that since I heard her crying and saw her frightened. Marinda looked shocked and sat silently with her head bowed, coddling him and patting his hair in soft Slow strokes. What did you mean when you told me that they might hurt you and muck you right up? Who could do that? Zimmerman needed to know. I don't know, except the father came by the house the next day with no one here. I was wagging school. He turned to his mother apologetically. Hold up in the hut out in the back garden with my mates smoking, and we had a few drinks. There were two of them. Father Quarterman and some other fellow came out the back, calling Lisa's name. Stayed a long time talking amongst themselves, but I couldn't hear what they were saying. Maybe after 20 minutes or so, they left. Do you remember what the other man looked like? Oh, big fat bastard, he said. Sorry, Mum, but he was. Maybe your height, bald. I can't remember much more. It was almost six months ago, but next day Lisa was gone. He didn't know anything of what had happened to her, just that she'd gone and that he should take his that he should take his place well-dressed at the front on the day when they planted her in the ground. Mirinda too knew nothing of this and looked wide-eyed at both her men. There were no local church records to sift through, but maybe Nan Curvis might know of the other man. And afterwards no one said any more about it. I miss her smile, he said, turning to his mother who could only hold him in soft agreement. It took a small child to dredge up all that she had sublimated and cleansed. They both thanked him and left him to play with his toys, and he was happy that the disclosure of his alcohol, cigarettes and truancy had not incurred the slightest penalty. She sat stunned in her kitchen and Zimmerman massaged her neck. No one could have known of this, he told her, kneading the tightness in her shoulders. He gave her all the confirmations that she was a good mother and all the soft platitudes that anyone who bears a tragedy under their watch would ever want to hear. But there are some things that cannot be foretold. The rough deaths and madnesses in families that no one can predict. No mother would want less than to protect them all completely, save them from the worst. It was a game of constant anticipation, and she had not played it well. She surrendered quietly to the moment, now all dried of tears. Although he dutifully held her all night long, he was relieved to see the sun come up around the back garden. A coffee and more than a half dozen cigarettes were called for before crawling back under the duvet to be there when she awoke. She had drifted off back to sleep when he left. A small note explained that he thought she needed a phone and that she could use his police one. It had a pager which he could ignore and he left her his contact of the other smartphone which he was keeping. She should take it with her whenever she went and uh, he would call her later. He went to meet with Nancurvis at his home for breakfast. Finding out large swathes of a story always gave him an appetite, and he tucked into Nanka's full English. I think the fat guy was a verger they sent up temporary. Nancurvis was in a jovial and energetic mood. Everyone registers with us when they hit town, and we'll be able to find out his details at the station. You'll get to see Alma again, he laughed out loud. His wife fixed his tie and washed the food stain off his fresh shirt before pushing him off to work like he was her best little boy. At the station she came up behind Zimmerman to needle him in the loin and he jumped forwards with a start. She was good at sneaking up on people. Remember me? It was the young blonde policewoman and she seemed proud of the public nature of her conquests laughing openly at Zimmerman. Everyone knew and she didn't give a fuck. Except when she did. You never called me, you prick. She was smiling and it was clear that she wasn't really bothered. Dan Curtis had told him on the way over that she had already been through the office and he might care to get himself checked. "'Well, it wasn't like you stayed for a post-shag cigarette,' Zimmerman lamely replied. He crossed his hands over his groin and told her coyly and mock fancy that he was so impressionable and that she had played him for her needs. So she let him know that, she, that they could go around again if he thought he could last for more than a minute.' They all laughed at that one. She was used to getting anything and anyone she wanted. She'd be over at the Alfred after work if he wanted to catch up and she patted him on the bum, whistling as they as she left. They went and looked at the municipal registry which kept the names, addresses, mobile phones and occasionally the emails of all those in official positions in the town. Then Curvis looked back over the last year. Here he is, Walter Ince, I have an address in Dampier and an email. No departmental photo, but we've been a bit slack on that sort of thing. What a surprise. Well, we won't pre-warn him electronically, Zimmerman replied. They tried the phone number, but it was no longer in service, or maybe it had never been connected. I can get across to Dampier tomorrow if I leave early enough in the morning. He took down all the details and bundled the files of all the psychiatric cases in the last few years under his arm. It was an unemotional goodbye. See you when I see you, he told Nancurvis, and he gave him a short, brisk hug. His obligation was to Marinda, and they had lunch at the Alfred. When he saw her, he kissed her on the lips, and the patrons, unused to such a show, public show of affection, all turned around disapprovingly as one. She wanted to come with him to see Ince, but he didn't need the emotion. This was something else and not for those too closely involved. She had to accept it and begged him to come to her bed that night. She seemed weakened by it all, so fearful of being alone. They made love three times and with so little sleep he drove to Dampier. The long road into Dampier hugs the coast and there's a large hill that needs ascending with a perfect view of the masked tanker stevedores unloading the brightly coloured containers on the wharf before one rockets down the esplanade and into the town. The dumps of iron ore lay around the entrance to the city like termite mounds, and there were men cleaning them off with bobcats. He heeded the bland GPS-automated instructions where to go to find Ince turning now right and left across small, leaf-laden avenues. The place had weathered the latest drought particularly well. The house was a weatherboard clap that had doubtless seen better times the garden unkempt with a nice patch of special tended hybrid roses and a yellow-green climber running across the top eave. He noticed the postbox was full with letters pushed through to the hill, hill t- uh, one stuffed on top of the other. After knocking, he waited, but there was no one there, and walking around the front veranda, he peered inside, a dark lounge suite and a coffee table with an old TV set and a real-time cassette player. Some family pictures, but no signs of life. He parked his card under the door and, making to leave, was hailed by the neighbour watching from a vantage fence. Looking for Walter? Yes, rather important. And he flashed his badge to add the necessary authority. Oh, is he in some kind of trouble? Well, he is anyway, I suppose, he said, before Zimmerman could answer. What do you mean? And your name is? Caesar, like the Emperor. Melvin Caesar. Well, poor old Blight has had a stroke. He's in the general these last two weeks. Zimmerman shook Caesar's rough-worked hands and, passing over his card, he left, reminding him that he might want to talk with him again. Oh, I'll be here. Well, there's butter all else to do in this joint anyway, and he burst out a single shock of laughter. The maleness in the ward was suitably officious, but he also yielded pretty easily to a flash of the WAPF badge. Ince was asleep at the far end of the room, with both wrists held to the bedside railings by a thick crepe tape. Why is he shackled like that? He's been trying to get out of bed, hurt himself a couple of times. Has it it come to this, then, the way we all probably will go, shitting and pissing under ourselves, stroked out and confused, trying to climb over the side bars, getting out, there didn't seem to Zimmerman like such a rebellious act, and he felt sorry for someone he didn't even know. He can't speak since the stroke, the nurse said, waking the man next door who started growling for people to shut up. He calmed him down. He has aphasia, the one where you can understand but you can't express yourself. Quite frustrating. Zimmerman nodded, asking about the small communications plate with writing and pictures on it at the bedhead. Is that his Ouija board? It's his talking tablet, yes. He moves around the letters he wants to spell out with his rod, or if he's hungry, he goes to the picture of someone eating, or needs to go to the toilet, he goes to the picture of someone, well, you know, things like that. The important stuff. Fill your face and shit your pants. What more to life is there, he thought. Soon enough, it'll be his concern too. But if he had a stroke tomorrow, he thought about who would come to help. Nobody much would be there to give a crap. He thought himself so insulated from all of this right now, but in truth everyone was just an inch from Ince. Can he use it? The talking tablet, I mean. Haven't you got the one that Stephen Hawking uses so that we can at least communicate? They jogged in towards some consciousness, and he woke up staring with the deepest blue eyes at the stranger. Zimmerman introduced himself a couple of times and as one does with people who don't speak English, he started shouting at him, inscrewed up his face, nodding that he understood, and hinted with a dampening movement of his one working hand to drop the decibel level a bit. This was going to be quite tedious. They spent an hour with a few basic but important questions. At the mention of both Quatermain and Andrews, his eyes widened and he wrestled nervously with his bedclothes. He knew who they were, all right. You worked for Andrews too? Yes. But then he added, never met. You were the verger for Quartermain? Yes. You knew Lisa Jeffries? Yes. Why did you go to the Jeffries house at Quartermain in January looking for Lisa? Talk to her. He pushed out the symbols angrily and his mouth curled into an even more determined distortion. What were you covering up? Why were you there? The questions rambled faster than he could answer anything, tumbling out under their own steam. Talk to her, he framed again, but he was now becoming exhausted. What had Quatermain done? Molested all those boys? Killed Lisa? And what had Clint Hughes? Zimmerman was trying to get it all in, and it was too much. Ince's eyes closed, and there would be no more answering tonight. The nurse ushered Zimmerman away, telling him to come back in the morning but it mightn't do him much good. He lifted the sheet and showed him Ince's gangrenous right leg. You see that? It's it's coming off first thing tomorrow morning. Baloney amputation. Diabetes. If there was one saving grace, the dead leg is at least on the same side as his stroke. The road for Mr Ince is long, and he'll be lucky to make it. Any relatives been to see him? But there had been none. He pushed Zimmerman out and switched off the light after emptying Ince's urinary catheter. Time to go. The nurse was ordering him around now. It was like he was back once more at cadet camp. He had to find somewhere safe to stay in this place. The Albion bed and breakfast at least looked viable and there was a blue vacancy sign on its outer shingle. The room was clean enough with little tea and coffee makers and a small strip menu that only offered toast as a continental for wimps or a grilled steak fillet as the Australian for men. Why not indeed? A little meat and a a 7am start. He called Marinda early to hear her wake-up voice and she opened with a low, low, soft growl and stretch before clearing her throat. She missed him and he reiterated. It was easier in simple relationships to agree than to invent and he segued into a catch-up about Ince. Well, got more. there is something there. I love you, she said, and he thanked her. Love you too, must go, and he rung off. He thought about what it was going to be like should he let her down and off the hook. Horrid. Not to worry about it now, but he had done it countless times before. He had more important things to think about. There were always more important things. He rang Munro, who was still at home and asleep, surprising for the new commander. He made a joke about it, but Munro told him that he hadn't been particularly well, what with abdominal and back pains. Off his food. He'll come good, always does. To the sound of Munro dressing, he got him up to speed and asked him to secure an urgent warrant that day to search Ince's house. When it was granted, he could email it to him and call him on the smartphone number as he told Munro that he'd misplaced his police phone. He would find it in the next couple of days, he reassured him, and hoped that Marinda didn't answer the thing unless she knew it was him. With the warrant, he wanted all the regulations followed. The T's crossed and the I's dotted, OK? Monroe told him that he would go to work especially, although he didn't feel up to it. He'd been vomiting most of the night, and he told him in no uncertain manner that he'd better find that phone. Wait by your other phone, it'll be done. Monroe was more egalitarian than most, and never minded if one of his juniors ever had a better idea than he did. He was not a credit-taking kind of guy, and at times it was hard to tell in their working relationship who was boss and who the underling. After a hearty Australian breakfast, Zimmerman went to meet Caesar, who in generosity offered him eggs on toast. Not to be implied, Zimmerman cleared his plate like a hungry man. He didn't make the same mistake as he had made with Dr Henry Henry and he asked old Caesar first up what he did for a living. Oh, security guard for 40 years. Worked with all of them. IBM, BHP, Comsync, Rio Tinto, Lang Hancock, all that mob. Cybersecurity towards the end too. It was only of some interest and there was nothing more substantive from the interview. Ince had only been there about four months and was personable enough. But Lassie kept to himself to himself he had had the rare visitor, only one man with a small, trim beard, maybe 50 or more, about three weeks ago. But for the life of him, Caesar was sure that he wouldn't be able to recognise the man in a fit. He didn't get much of a look. He could come down and look at mugshots, but it would be a waste of time. He was certain at least of that. And Ince spoke of a daughter too, but Caesar never saw her. The neighbor's short testimony wasn't much to go on and Zimmerman left and went back to town. He sat around the centre, nursing a coffee and waiting for Monroe's warrant. There wasn't much else he could do. Chapter 15 In the meantime, Champion called him. <coughs> As usual, a little irate. He was always preening. Just off the line with Premier Kiraglu, who kept mentioning your name, and not in a flattering way. He wanted to be more in the loop. Where were we? When will he be off to Rome? All the particulars. Zimmerman chimed him in, but only in broad brush strokes. It was all in hand, he had told him. Just checking a few things locally back in the Pilbara, and then we'll be off. And where the fuck is Monroe? The least he could do in his new capacity is run the show, rather than me as commissioner having to chase field agents just to find out what's happening in my fucking investigation. He had a point, and Zimmerman cooled him down by turning it backwards and refocusing. Perhaps it would be timely for you to call a press conference. I'll email you my update and you could present it. I'm sure they would all want to hear how you're running things. It was such a backhand bullshit, but Champion lapped it up like it was baby formula. Those stressed, annoying moments are always chilled, Zimmerman thought. If one could take a prick like that and just turn the lamp on him. They like to bask in the warm glow. Seems to soothe the savage, stupid beast. The Commissioner relaxed. Not a bad idea, not a bad idea at all, and he rang off duly satisfied. It seemed one of those fortuitous times when people simultaneously get the same idea, and within minutes of one another, Laura and Marinda had called. Laura wanted to know about the investigation, and he told her about the priests, but not about Ince or where he was. It was a day of satisfying people. First the commissioner, and now Laura. Where was he, she asked. And should he like her to come to him? But his new fidelity forced him to softly decline even across the other side of the state. She would have no inkling of his present loyalties, and she rung off. She could always find another fuck, far better than him, anywhere, any time, and he knew it. And Mirinda, she was different in her call. Softer. She needed reassuring. She missed him. The call was less carnal but more demanding and his patois would satisfy her immediate needs too, but in a different way. Both women wanted to be with him, but it only mattered to one. On matters closer to home, so far the team had held firm on Rome, and there had thankfully been no leaks that could have somehow made their way back to tip off Teddy or Carter. It was a small miracle. He jokingly thought that they were like Opus Day in his office, and that he couldn't fart in there without it hitting the Catholic news. He was impressed with the tightness of his group, but now he worried a little about Monroe. It wasn't like him to go AWOL, and he called him again to check on things. He would have the warrant shortly, he had said, a little breathless. You'll have it. Stand by. I got a call from Champion. He's bypassed you, boy. Said he couldn't find you. What the fuck's the matter? There was a long silence like when one might imagine that they've lost the connection and utter that hello, hello repeatedly to a tapped-out line. I'm here, he said quietly. Only Marge, you know my wife Marge, the doc, and you now know. Know what? Pancreatic cancer, he said matter-of-factly. No beating around the bush. Been unwell, what with the tummy gripes and the vomiting. But it was the back pain that really got me. Couldn't sleep most nights, just trying to get comfortable. I've been eating all right, but losing weight. I have no energy. He added the last as a full hand. Jesus Christ, can they do anything about it? Well, I don't think so. I'm going to see a second specialist, but it's spread to the liver, fairly extensively as far as I understand. It's pretty advanced. And before you ask, I've probably got a few months, that's all. Talk about you being in the right place at the right time. He was such a decent bloke, magnanimous, brave and funny all in one gesture. Zimmerman wished he could be like that when his time would come. Well, here it is as we speak, your warrant, I'm emailing the scam now. Monroe had gotten back to work and off his least favourite topic. We'll talk about all of this before you get off to Italy, eh? And just like that he was gone. There's such a numbness after a thing like that, what the fuck does one say, or do for that matter? There's the Samaritan bit, and he would cover Monroe's load all right. The friendship thing was okay too, but the bigger picture stuff is always a personal mess. Zimmerman just thanked Christ that it wasn't him, and he thought about how at first he had only considered himself. There was all that preliminary guilt. Monroe had helped him, saved him on more than one occasion, and was the rarest of birds, a genuinely honourable man. A brave, unassuming foot soldier who now seemed to show his courage even more. At times like this Zimmerman compared himself, the measure up, the calculus that had him not looking so good and he stupidly even speculated that this was somehow all about him. But it wasn't. His eyes welled up for the second time that week and he pushed the back of his hand against them to catch their spill. Must be getting soft, he thought. The Ince house was a bit musty, but otherwise all right. In the living room, the pictures on the walls and of Ince in his albums were all of him with trains. Train spotting, timetables, museums, driving them with his little hat. But there were no family photographs, nothing of his daughter. He was clearly a union man, federated stevedores. There was one of him receiving some sort of award, and he was pretty good at lawn bowls. A championship trophy with a crouching man, a pennant or two. It was all a little bleak. Zimmerman scraped through Ince's belongings a penchant for safari suits, but it wasn't exactly a crime. Little knickknacks from trips to Singapore and Bangkok. A few more photos splayed out on the fridge of Ince with some young Asian girls. A menu from the Lang Kong Bar in Phuket. And finally, Jackpot, a black address book. Quartermain and Andrews both in there with numbers crossed out. He rang them, but both were out of service. He made a trace of their addresses from his office, but they were just post office boxes and now closed off. He went outside and collected the mail, mostly bills and flyers, but one returned address to a Karen Phillips. Her Perth number's also in the book with two new rewrites. Now where else would he hide something? He looked under seats and mattresses, the usual places in books and magazines, behind the cupboard. But there it was, underneath the underpants in a drawer, a hiding place for an old fashioned bank book for the Inner City Link Bank of Adelaide. He pored over it, looking for a connection. Six months before the time of little Lisa's death, there, a deposit of $62,000, and there too, four years previous a week after the Hughes boy had been found, nearly the same amount. He called Karen's number and asked her straight up if she knew Walter Ince at all. She most certainly did. He was her father, but they'd not spoken in nearly 40 years. Yes, she knew that he was in hospital, but had no interest in coming to see him. He could rot there for all she cared. No, she didn't know about the amputation, but it would make no difference. This was not the place for such a conversation and when he was in Perth with the appropriate ID, she'd be prepared to meet, she told him. He wrote down her address and promised to call by tomorrow. It was five blocks from his own apartment. He wasn't going to hang around waiting for old Ince to come too after the lopping off. If he survived, then he survived, and that was all there was to it. One of the young constables could spend all the time in the world watching him move the rod from letter to letter on his talking tablet. There was plenty to ask him if he made it, but that wasn't under Zimmerman's control any longer. The big man upstairs would have to come through now, he thought, if Ince was to be of any value. When sun-up came around, he had a short drive to the private Karratha airport that took him by a Fokker back home. Hang the expense. Now he would travel in style. Monroe looked like shit. Now that Zimmerman knew, he did look drawn and a little gaunt. He hadn't noticed it before. Monroe was boldly taking the Commissioner's crap on the speakerphone, with Zimmerman bundled back into the office in the best of all moods, ready to start work when most were contemplating going home. He filled Monroe in and emailed Champion, as he had promised. There was much the Commissioner could tantalise the press with. The imminent solving of not one but two outstanding murders in the Indigenous community. Quite a coup for a caring Commissioner. His boss could spin it as he wished... No doubt he might choose to label himself a champion of race. He called Mirinda to tell her he was back in Perth. She asked if she could come and stay with Arthur in tow. The others were old enough to fend for themselves. She was in a non thinking place where she would abandon some of them for the hope of an imagined future. But that's what some women can do if they don't read the signs right. What was she thinking? He told her that in a few days he had work overseas, but that she was welcome. She could feel the excuses coming, and her brightness paled. It all sounded pretty lukewarm. Karen Phillips answered the door in her robe. She hadn't been well, and she'd hoped that this wouldn't take long. The less she needed to talk about her father, the better. So what was it? he he asked, and she was off. A box of scotch finger biscuits would get her through. Well, what did he want to hear first? When the abuse started, or the drinking, or maybe his hitting mum, take your pick, and all the sticky feel-ups she'd had to endure growing up in their Belgrave Road flat. The minute she was old enough, she ran from there and hadn't seen him since. All his special trips to Singapore and Thailand, she knew about it all, but fortunately no brothers or sisters to hold her back. No Mr Phillips either. She'd changed her name. And there never was a man to speak of. She could thank her father for that. She didn't even go to mum's funeral those five years since at Caracata Cemetery. The bastard had been there and kept her away from doing that. No, she definitely doesn't give a toss about the amputation. They can amputate all of his limbs for all she cared. And a stroke serves him right. Show her a dead dog in the street and she'd have more time and interest. She didn't know of either Quartermain or Andrews. Heard that her father was a volunteer for the church these last many years. But wouldn't that be nice? So close to those little servers of Christ. It made her sick. Next morning, Laura leaned over Zimmerman with her hands slapping at the clock, which kept pushing away from her across the bedside table until its alarm forced her to fully waken. Just then, the landline next to it rang, and she answered it instinctively, It was a few minutes before seven and for some reason the sun hadn't hadn't quite come up. It's for you, she said, handing him the receiver. Someone called Marinda, but by the time he'd picked it up and said his hellos, the line had gone dead. He thought about calling her back immediately, but he'd been caught red-handed and there would only be lame excuses, tears and the like, and he'd end up saying things he didn't mean. He lay back in bed and gave a deep, pushed-out sigh, turning on his side and placing his arm around Laura like a carry bag. She lifted it off and positioned his hand under her shoulder so that he could cup her breast and he drifted back to sleep. Waking at almost midday, he could not recall a time of better sleep. It seemed so unusual, as he was even at the best of times a terrible sleeper. He had read in amusement of one European poet who claimed not to have slept for 50 years. Christ, what a record to break. If it wasn't the ruminations going on, every little thing and the minutest detail that kept him from drifting off, then it was the early morning wakening and the inability to get back to sleep afterwards. The wandering around the house at some ungodly hour was the most distressing. He had thought of depression, but all those pills had made no difference whatsoever, even when he had tried so hard to stick with them. If something takes six weeks to work, it was probably rubbish, he thought. The tablets had made him worse, actually, what with vivid, powerful, frightening dreams and even thoughts of topping himself. If they were stopping him from harm, then he should keep at it, but if they were turning him into someone so crazy that he could ever contemplate doing away with himself, then they needed to go. It had been an agonising decision that he had made alone over one of the worst weeks of his life. And so he threw the prescription tablets away a year before now, watching them do their death spiral down the flusher. And the first two days he'd felt worse. Maybe it had all been a mistake. But further on, by the end of the week, his head had started to clear and the mist pall of death and the idea of suicide had disappeared. Dangerous stuff, he thought and he'd never take them again. Laura jogged him forward from his memory of recent tougher times. She was sitting on him with her breasts dangling almost onto his face. She'd made breakfast, casually asking her questions about Marinda. Oh, a witness to a murder is all. He hadn't even said that she was the mother of the little victim. It would have led to so many more questions. Here she lay in anonymity and insignificance. It was just as he liked it. No more inquisition. He'd so artfully lied one of those effortless lies that Laura knew that the woman meant more. But she let it be. The infidelity of it all held little power over her, and she gave it no more thought. When he'd arrived at work, there was a fax from the inner city bank in Glenelg on the outskirts of Adelaide, confirming that the most recent large cheque paid out to Ince had come from the office of the St Ignatius Loyola Girls' School, and that the other had been authorised by Our Lady of Lourdes from the province of Ashburton. We would get Nilo Hurley, Hurley onto it, the guy who dealt with all the fraud and counterfeit set, a remarkably personable fellow just like Monroe, good Irish stock, with a hankering for the Guinness, who amuses the gang by telling them that in a session, if he drinks enough of the liquid iron, that his next day's shit darkens. It was the trimming and the packing that anyone living in Australia needed to do before any overseas trip. Australia was so far from anywhere and Zimmerman didn't like it. He missed all that European travel. Or maybe the thought of European travel, its possibilities. All the places, a hop, skip and a jump away that he could get to if he really had the time. Like living next door to La Scala and never going to the opera. Just the thought that he could was good enough for him. But here it was three hours to Sydney before the trek to Singapore or Bangkok or even Delhi. He was closer to Bali than he was to his family in Melbourne, and he felt about as connected to both. Throwing out things, including other stuff, pulling bits and pieces from one file to the other and honing down the computer files and USBs for instant recognition. There was always something he'd forget, like underpants and toothpaste, but never his work papers, He'd never, ever been caught short there. He did it all to put off calling Marinda, but it had to be done. She didn't answer the phone, and he tried a few times before she picked up. Sometimes the truth is the best truth, and he told her about Laura. Not all of it exactly, but enough to get the big picture. To know that trust with him was fluid. His heartlessness kicked in and he pummeled her with the cultural thing, the we are so different line that more than once, even without the racial divide, would have gotten him over the rope of any relationship and away clean. But it didn't work on her. She wanted to know the whys and the if-onlys and the why-nots, the logistics of his infidelities, the times, the places didn't interest her. It was the conceptual thing with which she busied herself. The sort of thing that someone from an entirely different background might need to know. Why couldn't he ever see himself in some domestic bliss with a woman like her, or with her fine upstanding children hanging on to the coattails of a man like him? He'd let himself down, not her. She couldn't see the child in a man whose only commitment was to remain uncommitted. It became, as these things sometimes do, a conversation that goes everywhere and nowhere and that lasts an hour or more, likely a lifetime. Those intransigent walls one puts up around places no one wants to visit. He was tired of the whole thing and knew how he would feel next morning, wishing for it all back just as it had once been. He was an Olympic champion in throwing valuable things away. She'd decided to come after all. When he was back, maybe he would feel differently after his trip. Maybe she would as well. Such a chance at life outside the present would be worth it, she had told him. Without the trying, she said, neither of them would ever know. Okay, he said with tempered enthusiasm. I'm in. The group had been briefed for Rome. There had been no indiscretions, and as far as they all knew, the confidentiality of the trip had remained intact. No late-night boozy pub confessions or indiscreet revelations by any of them. It was for Zimmerman and Monroe a first. Well, Monroe was really out of it. He was sitting in hospital this last day with the itch of jaundice, waiting for them to ram home a stent down his bile ducts, savagely compressed by the advancing tumour. He was finished and he knew it. Bravely directing matters from his hospital bed like it was the most natural thing in the world. Neither of them knew if he would still be there when Zimmerman would come back, but they both acted as if they had all the time on earth, both avoiding the inevitable and all done with Monroe's humour. Bring old Shistoff back to me on a plate, will you? Monroe was taciturn. Be careful there. He's a slippery Latin bastard now, he added. When things can look so bad that they can't get any worse, and then they do, it stretches one's faith, or for those who have no faith, It just seems hideously stupid. And just then, try as they might, they both couldn't stop laughing. All the discordant laughter over, Zimmerman clasped Monroe in an unexpected gentle embrace. He felt bony, like picking up something cherished that he didn't want to break outright. Monroe looked like the brother Zimmerman had held the week before. Too small for the bed.